Well, good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a tremendous joy and delight to be with you all this morning. Um, we knew the Phillips when they were members at Emmanuel Baptist Church with us, and we always regarded them as very dear and very faithful servants of the Lord Jesus. So it was a special honor and joy for us to be invited to come worship with you all this morning. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3. That's our sermon text for this morning, Romans 3, 21 to 31. Romans 3, 21 to 31. And here is what the authoritative and life-giving word of God says in that portion. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what, by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray one more time. Our God, we thank you for your gospel, which you promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures concerning your son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared in power to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. We praise you that by this gospel, you are creating the obedience of faith among all nations. So we cry out to you this morning, Lord, would you cause that kind of obedience to be begotten in any heart here that doesn't know it yet. And I pray that in every heart where you have already worked this kind of obedience, that you will further it by the power of your word. So I pray that your spirit will come with power Help me to be clear. Help, us, help all of us to stand under the authority of your life-giving word. Come, Lord Jesus, and help. Because we know unless your spirit comes, all is vain. The flesh profits nothing. Your spirit gives life. And I pray that he will move in power. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have been in church for any amount of time, you have probably heard a preacher say, as human beings, 
we all have lives that are marked by a fundamental problem. You've probably heard someone say that somewhere. And the reason that is a common theme in the message of the church is because it's true. The church is not emphasizing that for no reason. The, church, the reason the church keeps saying that is simply because it's true. I once heard a pastor friend say, cliches are cliches for a reason. The reason pe- people keep repeating cliches is because they capture something that most people resonate with. But you know, when we say that every human life is marked by a fundamental problem, we are not just throwing out a cliche. We are saying something that is the infallible diagnosis of God's infallible mind. It's God's diagnosis of every human condition. Every human being has a life that is marked by a fundamental problem. That's what God says. When God looks down from heaven, he sees a fundamental problem besetting every human life. And what problem are we talking about this morning? Paul would answer and say, it's a problem of righteousness. It's a problem of righteousness. If you ask the Apostle Paul, what what fundamental problem would you see with every human being everywhere at any time in history? Paul will say it's a problem of righteousness. You know, because of the age we live in and, and because of the breathtaking technological advances that have happened and because of other realities like the pandemic that we have known for a couple years now and in many ways are still living through and because of shifting worldviews and radical redefinitions of, you know, the basic of human existence like sexuality and male and female and gender and all these sorts of things. And because of political turmoil, we can be drawn into thinking that our fundamental problem lies with one of these things. Those things are big, no question about that. But none of those is our fundamental problem. At the end of the day, our fundamental problem, our biggest problem as as human beings is a problem of righteousness. And how does Paul frame that problem for us? It is this, none is righteous in and of themselves. There is none righteous, no, not one. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 10. Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is none righteous, not even one. Then verse 11. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And verse 23 famously says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So any creature you will ever meet that you can call a human being, You may not know much about them. You may not know their name. You may not know their favorite food or their favorite sports. You may not even know anything about them, social status, marital status, or whatever. You may not know all of that, but you can know one thing with firm certainty. It is this. They are not righteous before God in and of themselves. There is none righteous. No, not even one. This is something that young lovers often miss out on. See, when a young woman or a young man meets somebody they are really attracted to, it would feel like this one is sinless, you know, and then they will go for a while with them and then they will soon find out, no, they really are not sinless. (laughs) And the reason that is true is because our feelings, our judgments, our evaluations can never trump the word of God. There is none righteous, not even one. And that's a problem. It's quite a problem. 
But it's even worse than that. It's not just that there is none righteous in and of themselves. The problem goes beyond that in terms of the fact that we cannot even fix the problem. We don't have the power in us to fix our problem of unrighteousness. We do not have a way of pulling ourselves out of the black hole of unrighteousness. Listen to what verse 19 of Romans 3 says. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, note carefully the purpose for why God gave the law. Why was the law given? Well, the law was given so that every mouth may be stopped and so that every, the whole world may be held accountable to God. What does it mean, every mouth may be stopped? It means the law of God shows us no one of us has anything to say in defense of themselves in the law court of God. When God brings you before his court and charges you for being unrighteous, for breaking his law, you are guilty as charged. No one of us has any defense whatsoever to present before God for themselves. We are unrighteous people. That's the meaning of every mouth might be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. In fact, the word that is translated held accountable is a little bit of an under-translation. That word actually means guilty. It, 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 it's best translated as guilty because when somebody is examined in a law court and held accountable, if they pass the cross-examination, then the judge is going to have to say, not guilty. But that's not our situation before the law court of God. When we are brought into God's law court, the only verdict that's going to come, that's going to be handed down by the just and righteous judge of the universe is that we are guilty. So the law was given so that every mouth may be stopped, no self-defense, nothing we have to say in defense of ourselves, and the whole world held guilty. Now, have you ever come to that place in your life? Have you ever come to a place in your life where all your arguments have been stopped? Have you ever come to a place in your life where you recognize I have no appeal, no recourse before God. I have nothing to present for myself before God as a reason for why he shouldn't send me to hell. Have you ever come to that place? Have your arguments all fallen apart? You know, the reason sometimes someone can be in church and they feel like, I'm doing pretty good, you know, like I don't need Jesus. Jesus is good, but, you know, I, I don't quite need him. is because they have not encountered the law of God. They've not looked at themselves in the mirror of the law of God. Because the law of God is meant to stop your self-exalting arguments of self-righteousness. It will not stand in the law court of God. The law was given so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held guilty before God. That's why the law was given to us. It shows that every human being deserves and is awaiting the judgment of God. That's what the law of God shows us. That's what it brings us to. So each of us has a problem that is far worse than anything any expert could ever possibly tell us. Anything anyone could ever possibly diagnose for us. And worse than that, we don't have any way of solving that problem for ourselves. There's no such thing as pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when it comes to this. Because left to our own devices, we are undone. We have no recourse before God. But Paul's argument 
does not end in gloom and doom. That's not where Paul's argument ends, okay? The solution is presented to us in verse 21. And the solution is that God has manifested a righteousness. You see, verse 21 of our text, it says, but now, so, so note the but, it's, 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 there's a transition, that is a contrast happening. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, notice that Paul says, but now. Those two words indicate to us Paul is speaking in temporal categories here. He's speaking in terms of back then, but now. That, that, that's, that's what Paul is doing. There's a significant shift that has happened in God's work to save a people for himself. We have come from the old covenant into the new covenant. And that's why Paul can speak in terms of the but now categories. And what is so new about this time in salvation history? What's so new about what God is doing to save a people for himself at this time? The thing that is new is that God has manifested a righteousness. God has gone public with a righteousness. God has publicized a righteousness that is not based on human effort to keep the law. See that? It says a righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Not based on you trying to impress God with obedience, with, with, with taking the Lord's Supper, with coming to church, or with anything else that you could possibly try to do for yourself. It's a righteousness that is apart from the law. Okay? So, so, so you, you see what, what the Bible is showing us here. A problem of unrighteousness, God has provided a decisive solution for it by manifesting a righteousness that is apart from the law. It's a revelation in history. It's a law court reality. So those who would have been charged guilty in God's law court now have the opportunity to be declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what God has done. And that's exactly what verse 22 says. Look again at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. That's God's solution for our problem. We could not, we could not have righteousness through the old covenant because it's obsolete. It's passe. It's, it's, it's past. Jesus is coming, has rendered that covenant no longer the one by which we become righteous before God. Now, I want you to notice just how God-centered what we are talking about is because it says the righteousness has been manifested. Who is doing the manifestation here? The answer is God. It's not us twisting God's arm to do something. It's God doing it out of his sheer mercy to us. But that's not the only thing. The next thing is, it is God who justifies. If you look at verse 24, verse 24 of our text will say, and are justified by his grace as a gift. You know, anyone can justify themselves. And we all know that. Husbands and wives, we all know. What I mean, no, I was, I, I, I was right because I was thinking X, Y, and Z. You know, I was not exactly wrong because of this. We all are familiar with self-justification. But none of that will pass before God. It is God alone in the whole universe who has the prerogative to declare anyone righteous in his law court. So, so what we are talking about is intensely God-centered. It has to be God 
counting somebody righteous before him for that person to indeed be righteous. And that comes through you placing your faith in Jesus and nothing but faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And God will count you righteous. But Paul wants us to be protected from a potential misreading, misunderstanding. Because we could hear, okay, God has manifested righteousness at this time, apart from the law, and then we start to think, okay, then the Old Testament is an inferior part of God's word. It's, it's no longer binding on us. It's no longer applicable to us as God's word. And Paul would guard us from that kind of error by saying, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay? So what God is doing now is not disconnected from what he was always doing in the Old Covenant. What he was doing in the Old Covenant was pointing forward to what has now come to fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. So God is not acting against the law. He is acting in fulfillment of the law. He, what he showed as a faint picture in the old covenant, he has brought to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. All along, the Mosaic covenant, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was showing that there will come a new covenant that will fulfill and surpass what was being done in the old covenant. And that has happened in Jesus. God has manifested his righteousness in Jesus. Here's another way to say that. The deliverance that we have from the power and punishment of sin in Jesus is a fulfillment of the kind of deliverance that Israel had from Egypt when God delivered them from slavery there. Everyone is a slave to the power of sin. And when God delivers them from that power through faith in Jesus, that is an experience that fulfills what God was pointing in the picture of the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Or if you think of what God did in terms of asking the Jewish people to slaughter a lamb and bring the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat once every year and that by the high priest and the high priest alone, that was showing that's where man meets with God. That's where God forgives sins. But, but as we know, the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins. Those were innocent victims of that system. But in Jesus, he is a willing, self-sacrificing sacrifice that pays for our sins so that in Jesus, we meet the mercy of God. So all of what God was doing in the Old Testament comes to fulfillment here. So the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They were always pointing to it. You know, when Paul speaks about the fact that God was going to justify the Gentiles, anyone who is non-Jewish, by faith in Jesus. He says in Galatians 3 verse 8, And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the Old Testament was always preaching this gospel to us. Every other religion begins out of the blue. You know, people just start it. Somebody goes into a cave and says they had these visions and this, and then start with a core group of following, and then it expands. Not so with Christianity. Christianity did not start out of, out of the blue. The Lord God was always working towards the cross. Remember, one of the most succinct definitions of the gospel in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, 3, and 4. Christ Jesus died for sins according to the scriptures. 
He was buried. He was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It was always in keeping with what God was doing. So summing up here, Paul is saying, although there is none righteous, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from obedience to the law, and it is a righteousness that the Old Testament was always anticipating that was going to come in Jesus, and that has happened. But notice, he, he goes ahead to say, there is no distinction. Okay? If you look at verses 22 to 24 of our text, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I hope you follow Paul's logic here. You follow what Paul is doing here. The righteousness of God that comes through faith is for who? It's for all who believe. That's what Paul says. And why? Because there is no distinction. And why is there no distinction? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, so that's, that's Paul's logic. That righteousness is for all who believe. It's for all who believe because there is no distinction. And there is no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sometimes we will hear people say, this thing or that thing is the great equalizer. And by that, they mean that that thing uh, doesn't have regard for social status or ethnic background or educational status or something like that. I remember when the coronavirus pandemic exploded on the world scene, some journalists will say, it's not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what you make every year. It doesn't matter your zip code. It doesn't respect anybody. So the coronavirus is an equalizer. But guess what? There is no greater equalizer than man's problem of sin and God's gift of righteousness. There's no regard for who you are, where you have come from, and what you have or do not have. Everyone is unrighteous before God. Everyone can be forgiven through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, by grace alone. If you look at the second part of the verse, it says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the Jews could not boast that they have the law and therefore are a special people. Of course they had the law. Of course they were God's covenant people. But that did not give them any intrinsic advantage. They were just as ungodly and unrighteous before God as the Gentiles who did not have the law. And it's only in Jesus that they could be counted righteous. And Paul does not want to quickly pass over the name Jesus. He takes some time to tell us who this Jesus he's talking about is. So if you look at verse 25, who is this Jesus? He is the one whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. God put Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood. He's the atoning sacrifice. He's the one who absorbs the wrath of God and turns God's intense and righteous displeasure against our sin into grace and a basis for forgiveness for us. Now, why did God do that? Well, verse 25 continues. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Have you ever talked about this? Abraham was just as unrighteous as you and I are. 
David was just as unrighteous as you and I are. He was a murderer. He committed adultery. Everyone in the Old Testament was just as unrighteous as you and I are. How then did God forgive them? How could God be both righteous and yet look away from sin as though it did not happen? And Paul explains to us here that the reason God put Jesus public as the propitiation, as the atoning sacrifice for the sins that were even previously committed was so that God might show himself as righteous. So he did not just look away from the sins of Abraham or from the sins of David. It's because these people trusted the promises of the coming Messiah. And now Jesus has been put forward by God as that Messiah in whom Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and all the saints of the Old Testament believe. So their sins have been paid for even in the death of Jesus. That's how powerful the cross is. It pays even for sins that were previously committed. Here's another way to look at it. You know, there's an amazing statement about God in the book of Exodus. Remember when, God, when, when, Mo, when Moses said, tell me your name. What's your name? What did God say? That no one can see my face and leave. Show me your glory. No one can see my face and leave. And said, I will pass. I'll put you in a rock and pass before you and proclaim my name before you. And what name did God give to Moses in that sin? He said, my name is the Lord, the Lord. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Do you hear the tension there? How could God possibly be one who forgives sin and at the same time not clear the guilty? Do you hear the tension? He forgives sin, he doesn't clear the guilty, and we are all guilty, and yet we are forgiven. How does that work? So that creates a tension in God that drives redemptive history all the way to the cross. And at the cross of Jesus, the righteousness of God and the mercy of God come together. In the death of Jesus, the wrath of God due against our sins is poured on Jesus. And on that basis, we can receive mercy. We can be counted righteous so that truly God becomes one. He shows himself as one who is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. That's the point of verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. For God to be just means he punishes sin. For him to be the justifier of the one who has faith is to say he forgives sin. How can the, how can the two be true of God? It's because of the cross of Jesus. In Christ Jesus, the sins are paid, and through faith in Jesus, the righteousness of, of Jesus is credited to our account, and God can declare us righteous. You know, if it is just as wicked to look away from sin and pretend that it's not a big deal as it is to do sin. Okay, if, 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 if somebody, if, if, if you can imagine a country in which wicked things happen and the law court just says, we forgive you, that's no big deal. Murder happens, we forgive you, that's no big deal. Of course, the moral fabric of that nation is going to unravel, Right? So if God just looked at the wickedness of Abraham and of David and of everyone else and just says, I forgive you, that's no big deal. The moral fabric of the whole universe will unravel. Somebody has to pay for that sin. There's something in us that cries out for justice when wickedness happens. And that's because we are created in the image of God. So how could God, who is this just and would not, for, would not let sin go unpunished, forgive us who are sinners? The answer is, those sins are paid for in the death of his only begotten, the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that do to us? That's, 
beginning at verse 27 of our text. It excludes boasting. Boasting is excluded. And just think about it. We have a problem that is worse than anybody could ever possibly explain or imagine. God has provided a solution for that in Christ through faith alone. What's that supposed to do to us? Verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. How could you possibly boast and exalt yourself for a gift like the righteousness of Christ given you by faith alone? You did nothing to deserve it. You were just as wicked as the person next door to you. You know that apart from God's grace, you will just be as wicked as everyone else. So therefore, boasting is excluded. No one can say, I earned this. Because it's a gift given us by God. We are just as wicked and just as equally justified. A Jew or a Gentile. Whatever you do, it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are forgiven. And therefore, boasting is excluded. No one can boast before God. God uh, Paul says the same thing in chapter 4 about Abraham. If Abraham was justified by works, if he did something that earned him right standing with God, then he would have the right to boast, but not before God, because Abraham was just an, as much an idol worshiper as everyone else. And then God showed him mercy, and he believed and was counted righteous by faith alone. If you are here, saved by grace, the ground of boasting is cut out from under your feet, and that's for the good of your soul, because we have nothing to boast about before God. And then here's another way to look at it. If the Jews were going to be justified one way and the Gentiles were going to be justified one way, then it almost means there are two gods in the universe. A God for the Jews and a God for the Gentiles. But what does the Bible say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Because there is one God, he's going to justify everybody the same way. It's not going to justify the Jews one way and the Gentiles another. In other words, your ethnicity, your background, and the taste of your native food, the sound of your mother tongue, of your native language, is irrelevant in terms of whether you go to heaven or not. It is the faith you exercise in Jesus that saves you, not where you have come from. So we can praise the Lord and rejoice in God. That no matter where we have come from, through faith in Christ, we can be indeed counted righteous. I grew up in a very multi-ethnic and multicultural country. There are about 280 different tribal groupings in Cameroon. That means a group of people who speak a particular language and do marriage, marriage celebrations a certain way and celebrate the birth of a new baby a certain way, and do funerals a certain way. They have a culture of their own. They have a language of their own. We have about 280 of such people groups. And it always never failed to strike me as amazing that almost every people group has a derogatory term by which they regard people of another. They describe people of another tribe. Why is that? It's because as human beings, for one reason or the other, we are always tempted to think we are better than them in a certain way. You know, I mean, of course, in America, there, there, there aren't tribal groupings as we have in Cameroon, or at least not as many. But you could have different things, different political leanings, different views on social issues, uh, different thoughts about homeschooling and public school, 
These sorts of things could make us to start to think, I'm better because I'm doing this and not, and not them. Uh, I'm better than them because I do this or that. As human beings, we are always looking for something to cling onto and think of ourselves better than anyone else. But in Christ Jesus, that kind of boasting is utterly, completely excluded. Because we are all counted righteous by faith and by faith alone. Which is why the Bible says that in Christ, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. So Christ tears down those reasons that from our own shared depravity we try to use to exalt ourselves. He shows us we are all equally culpable before God and through faith in Jesus are equally forgiven. So boasting is excluded. So let me close with a couple of applications of this glorious gospel. I know as our brother Peter said at the beginning of the service, today is Mother's Day. And the fact of the fact that we are all unrighteous in and of ourselves and can be counted righteous only in Christ Jesus alone has everything to do with being a mother. There's no reality as human beings that is disconnected from the reality of our being unrighteous in and of ourselves and having the opportunity and the ultimate gift of being counted righteous in Christ and Christ alone. And motherhood is definitely not disconnected from that. If you're a mother, let me just speak to you for a moment here. It may be that you feel pretty good. You, you feel pretty, you feel like you're doing well. The Lord's been helping you and, and you're diligently changing the diapers if you're still in that stage or cooking the meals or doing the laundry or having the conversations or doing the discipline. Praise be to God for that. Praise be to God for that. That is hard work. In fact, the Bible clearly shows that one of the marks of Women who hope in God is that they rear children, that they raise children. First Timothy 5.10 says that very explicitly. And, and this, this doesn't have to be your own very biological children. God could bring children into your life in different providential ways. But it is just the case that a woman who hopes in God delights in pouring themselves out to see that child raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So I just want to say to you, don't be weary about that work. Press on. The Lord will richly reward it. But here's something you need to remember. Only that kind of work that is done from a recognition that you have been forgiven in Jesus can be smiled on by God. Anyone who is trying to do that kind of work in order to earn right standing with God condemns themselves. You cannot, by mothering, earn your way to heaven. Instead, you get forgiven in Christ. You receive the gift of Christ's righteousness and as a result are seeking to be a faithful mother. So that true mothering, the kind of mothering that God smiles on is the one that is the fruit of having been forgiven in Christ. So we are not faithful mothers in order to be forgiven and to have right standing with God. We should be faithful mothers because we have been forgiven and have been given right standing with God. That's the kind of labor as a mother that God blesses and smiles on. Now, maybe your case is the opposite. Maybe it's not like you feel thankful and grateful and happy about the way things are going with, your, with, with the way you have functioned as a mother. Maybe you are even seeing 
some, uh, 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 some of the fruit of your own failings in the lives of your children already at this point, and, and you feel horrible, you feel like a terrible failure as a mother? Or it could even be something more haunting than that. Maybe you remember having been pregnant earlier on in life as a teenager or whatever time it was, and, and you thought that baby is going to be a hindrance to my life's dreams and goals, and, and you committed murder through abortion, trying to end that defenseless life because you just did not want the inconveniences that come with that. That can be terrifyingly haunting, and it should be because of what it is. But whatever your situation is, whether it's something terrifyingly haunting for you, or it's just a sense of failure in the present right now, there is good news. And the news is, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's God's word. That's not a preacher's tactic. That, that's a word God has given and will not take back. It doesn't matter what you did or have done now. God will forgive and count you righteous if indeed you turn to him through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you have trusted Jesus and there are still memories from the past, still a sense of failure that is haunting you right now, that's not from God. It's from the devil who is called the accuser of the brethren. Because those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed their transgressions from them. This is good news, beloved. For those who are in Christ, God has indeed counted them righteous and has forgiven them. Now, it's true that many of us here are not mothers. In fact, for those of us who are men, God did not design us to be mothers. So never try to be a mother, no matter the insanity that we see in the culture and all the redefinitions. Men were meant to be men, and they should not try to be mothers. But everybody in the room has a mother. Maybe your memories of who your mom was is, 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 is how they hurt you, how, how they, 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 they made your life bitter and hurtful and painful and traumatic. And you know, we, we feel particular pain when we know that that pain was caused to us by somebody who should have loved us and protected us. That kind of pain is particularly painful. We can almost feel justified in deciding not to forgive them because they were supposed to care for us and protect us, and instead, they hurt us. But through Jesus Christ, you can experience the kind of forgiveness that will free you and empower you to forgive even the most horrendous wickedness that was ever committed against you. God is able to forgive you and free your heart from pain and hurt that someone else has caused you so that you can forgive them as well. Because when we have received forgiveness and known forgiveness, we learn from that to be able to forgive others. Or it could be that your own memories are not that your mom hurt you, but that they did everything to love you and all you gave them back was rebellion and dishonor and hurt. And now you feel terrible that you did that. And maybe it's the case that mom is no longer here. So you don't even have the opportunity to go say sorry to them for what they did for what you did to them. But even if that is the case, hear these words from God through the mouth of Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
Even since you committed and don't have the opportunity to go back to the individual who was on the receiving end of your sin, God can abundantly pardon you for that. So whatever memories come to your mind about this, the gospel of God's righteousness has everything to do with it. Whether as a mother or as one who has a mother, whatever your experience was. So here's my point. As a believer in Jesus, you are to rest in the gospel. Believe the power of the gospel. Never try to earn your place with God because that is an accursed path. It will not lead you anywhere. Just rest in the forgiveness that is in the gospel. And if you're not a believer, you can turn to, to God and cry out for mercy and you will know mercy today. And when you are saved, don't bottle up this good news. Share it with others. Everybody needs the gospel as we sang. Everybody needs God. Whether they are living in the, in, in the Amazon forest of Latin America or in, 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 in the tropical forest of Africa or anywhere in Asia, the human problem is the same. They are unrighteous before God and the solution is in Christ Jesus. You will never meet a human being who has a different problem and needs a different solution. That's the problem every human being has. I was sharing with Peter. I was saved under the preaching of a missionary back in my home country in the little town of 5,000 in the northwest part of Cameroon. Where I grew up, my problem was I was unrighteous before God and God applied the solution of the cross of his son to my life and saved me. So you can be part of what God is doing across the world by praying for that gospel to go forward, by seeing that that gospel goes forward because no one will be saved unless they hear this gospel. And you can be part of what God is doing around the world. So may God make each one of us a people who are growing in their joy in the gospel, a people who are resting in the security of the gospel, a people who praise God for the gospel, and a people who are laboring in prayer and everywhere God calls us to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth and across the streets to our neighbors. May God make that true of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, the power of your gospel, the truth that even though we are condemned in and of ourselves in Jesus, you, the righteous judge, declare us righteous through faith in him. I pray that you will continue to strengthen the faith of your people here at Smithfield Baptist, Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of uh, Brother Peter. I pray that you would cause the fruit of their labors as a community of your people to endure, that they will see many neighbors come to faith through the power of this gospel, and that you will establish each one of them in this gospel and grow them and strengthen them and just show yourself as the God who has begun the good work in their lives and who will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.